What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 120, I'm speaking with Tim Doyle, co-founder of Eucalyptus, and Alex Badrin, co-founder of Spriggy. Eucalyptus is a healthcare technology company building digital experiences for patients, and Spriggy is a pocket money app helping kids learn how to budget. This is the start of a new series. We'll be experimenting with some funky interview formats, and what you're about to hear is a roundtable discussion dressed up as a podcast episode. Yep, the provocation town square. This really is an open-ended conversation to give you a sense of the key themes you're about to hear. Learn about how Alex and Tim first met, maths equations and cricket, PhD in mathematics, the balance between data and judgment and decision-making, the state of marketing today, finding product market fit in the second act of a business, generalist versus specialist talent, the concept of dreamers, leavers and settlers, and what's top of Alex and Tim's learning journey in the next six months. I hope you enjoy this great conversation, and if you have ideas for other iconic duos we should bring in a similar format, send me a note. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. All right, we are live in the Eucalyptus studio. And we've got Tim Doyle and Alex Badrin. We're doing something a bit different today. We, I'm going to throw out a bunch of themes and, and signposts, and we're going to get inside the brains of two, I think two of Australia's really cool founders and doing really cool things. So why don't we start with you, Tim? What are your memories of meeting Alex? Australia's coolest founder. Um, it was Boxing Day, Boxing Day 2017 or 2018, maybe, somewhere around there. Um, I was dealing with... Uh, someone threatening that if their mattress didn't arrive on the day, um, there was a chance they were going to kill them and their family. And you were doing a fundraise, I think? Yeah, I was doing a fundraise at the time. Um, I think you came across my pitch deck, so I was trying to convince you to give me a bit of cash, uh, which didn't work out for me. But um, anyway, we ended up becoming mates. We kind of we, we bonded over a few things. I didn't have customers who were threatening to kill themselves at the time, but we bonded over a few things and kind of kicked off from there. Yeah, I remember. I remember like after the sunrise conference of whatever the, the sunrise conference of 2018 was, we were like, um, we, you were there, and I I got stitched up with a presentation, um, and that kind of led to us talking about uh, oh, like just like like how poorly done the thinking around marketing was from a from a like a capital allocation and 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 kind of media management perspective and we'd kind of kind of got to that point right and i think like what what, what got you there to well i think i was i was i was new to the world of marketing so it was all kind of fluff to me it didn't really make sense um at all until i saw you speak to it where you spoke about you know capital allocation how do you think about bets how do you think about channels 
how do you think about it in a really measured way, in a really system-oriented way, a system-thinking-oriented way? Uh, and, and for me personally, I don't come from a background of marketing or tech or product. I come from a, a, a maths background where uh, like I, I, live, I live and breathe frameworks. And uh, you, that was kind of the first time I saw a framework which actually married up to the thinking that I'd, I'd had on the topic. Oh, uh, yeah, I remember. I remember like we were talking about, because like, I was doing a lot of, or like not, not as much um, at the time, but I'd, I'd come from a background where through uni, I'd done a lot of like sports trading. And I was talking about to you about how, um, how there was a pricing issue in the way that games were broken down because um, I, a, whole, a whole rugby league or rugby union game or whatever um, was priced in one way and then the halves were priced as just half of the whole game and like that's obviously ridiculous and I, so I was like oh look there was this opportunity and you're like yeah dude that's a whole thing in maths and then I was like, oh what did you do and um, and you told me that you had a, a PhD in probability and I, I kind of felt like I, my example was a bit dumb so um, but I actually think the story that tells this best is um is can you tell people about uh, why you uh, wrote your first program and started to win competitions? Yeah, sure, Tim. Uh, when I when I was uh, when I was at high school, I was early high school. I uh, was watching the cricket and uh, saw that you could fill in a form, put your details in, hit send, and, and win a cricket bat. And uh, I, so I did it. And then I went back on the website and hit send again. And I had two entries, and I did it again. I had three entries, and I was I was like, well, if I keep doing this, I can have the most entries, and I'll probably win a cricket bat. So I asked my brother at the time. He helped me write a little program. It's the first program I've written, uh, which just did what I was doing on the website. Um, ended up winning a, a cricket bat from signed by Steve Warren, the, the cricket team at the time. And then I kind of took this on. I was like, well, where else can I win win stuff in competitions? And I built a little bit of a, a little bit of a system. So I won a few cricket bats. I ended up winning um, cruise cruise around the Pacific Ocean, a few wine trips, uh, Kentucky tour. I was too young at the time to go on the Kentucky tour. So I got. Oh, I started when I was about twelve, and um, I got in trouble at school because they called up one of the. One of the companies who I'd won a, a go-kart from called up because I crashed their server and they were trying to trace who it was and they thought they were getting like DDoSed. Um, it just turned out I was a 12-year-old kid at boarding school trying to win a go-kart. So I got in trouble for that. Um, but I won a few things. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was just like, if you have the most, if you have the most entries, you, you're going to have the most likelihood of winning and, and I kind of cracked on from there. Yeah, I think that's probably... Yeah, so it goes, it goes like there's a, there's a very straight line from cricket bat to go-kart to cruise to university medal to phd to pocket money app right yeah it's a pretty straight line really um i, I don't know i've always i'm always I, I don't really know how to explain that I, I i like problems i like tinkering with things and i like um understanding systems and uh, you know i've always thought from first principles on problems and i don't whether it's maths or tech or another tool you use to solve the problem i'm more interested in the problem you're trying to solve as opposed to the, the technique or the, the methodology you're applying to solve it but i think like that actually gives you some unique capabilities in the way that you approach problems i think like a lot of people will think from first principles but won't have their first principles grounded in a like a logical framework that is like well established and well educated like what you've got from maths do you think do you think you you have a different version of first principles because of that oh, i think it's i think it's more um, so my, my, I studied at, obviously went to high school and then I did undergraduate degree in mathematics and then did a PhD with some very pure maths oriented professors They're from Eastern Europe, extremely intelligent, um, think very pure, like very abstract frameworks. And I think that I always was first principled in my thinking, but it's, it's, a, it's a discipline, you know, you go back, ask why, ask why, ask why, ask why, what, what problem are you solving, ask why. And I had years of that kind of beaten into me um it was frustrating at the beginning because i was i was just like let me keep moving and let me move forward but like it pulled you back and after that training 
I think it's less about techniques that people other people don't possess it's more about discipline and actually how you problem solve it's like a muscle you train uh, and I think that having gone through that academic kind of career path up until before I started I um you know that's a pretty unique experience and I think that's served me really well kind of going beyond for sure academia. so I, I think like it, there's a very like there's a very like uh, there is, you can certainly draw a through line from um from the cricket bat uh to the PhD um, I think where I, where I struggle to draw the through line is you go PhD and I think like a lot of um, mathematically talented people of your generation would have ended up in a options trading firm or a hedge fund or a uh, bank. Um, you didn't. Um, can you talk through the moment where it's like, oh, actually, this is not for me? Yeah. So when I was doing my PhD, I spent I spent a bit of time on a trading floor because I, I was like, look, I, was like, I like problem solving, I like maths, I, I like the world of finance. I want to be able to make money when I finish. Um, and you know, the advice you get from people is you can make money in finance and it was interesting to me. So I thought, yeah, I'll give it a crack. Um, I think pretty, like very soon in, like probably two hours on my first day, I was like, look, this isn't going to work for me. Um, and I think it's because you spend a lot of time thinking about the skills that you possess and where you can apply these skills. Um, and, and a lot of the career advice you get is is placed in the context of those who either have those skills and have applied them in, a similar manner or it's they're placed in a context which is just does not include your personality and your your fundamental drivers as a person um so for me like i, I was you know doing a phd working on a trading floor at the same time and um i was just miserable and i was like well you know like if you look at my cv it made a lot of sense and it was it would have been a good career path but it didn't factor into account like my personality like i like people i like you know I, i'm a Pretty, I don't take life too seriously. I like having a bit of fun. I like working with people, um, solving problems in teams. I like, I'm competitive, but I'm also competitive in a weird way. Um, I like solving fuzzy problems. Like how do you think of something at the very beginning of its life cycle? Um, and all these, all these elements aren't really taken into account when you just look at jobs. Um, I didn't like, you know, I went from being a hyperly special specialized person in my PhD to a hyperly hyper specialized person in in a trading role, and that just wasn't really for me. So I I kind of quit before I really started, and then took some time out to be like, what do I want to do with my life, and how does my skill fit in? How do my skills fit into that? Not the other way around. Yeah, I I I just like just to add a little bit of I think there's something there's a real like kernel of insight there around like career selection and and matching to a like a set of interests and skills rather than a, a logical kind of, like I, 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 that really resonates with me because I saw similar things. Um, and I was like, this is strange to me because I'm, I'm destined for a professional services firm. Um, but I have the same kind of attitude towards problem solving. Uh, and also I don't like, I don't love the idea of a ladder. And so then like to then go outside that and find something that was, um, was more intuitively matched to what I was good at and also what I was interested in was a big leap, but I think like one that was extremely worthwhile. And I think the other thing about career advice is it tends to be extremely dated. It tends to be uh, matched to a version of an economy that is, you know, because most of it comes from people that are successful 20 years ago. The the example that I'll give is like, I think a lot of people think of um, like uh, banking as an extremely lucrative uh, and like enjoyable path, but that's because the people who were at the top of banking were the early people of investment banking. Like they were investment bankers in the 80s and early 90s when it was 
new and fun and, and, and different. And you rose really quickly um, to pattern match that to now where it's extremely competitive. The road is long and all your bosses are 40. Um, doesn't necessarily hold true. So I think like finding areas of like areas of growth that align with your interests is, is a much more important principle and one that I think is often kind of like underrated and, and kind of forgotten. You both talked about data and now as found, if we zoom out and talk about founder life and I think building companies is, is data and judgment. And you both seem to come from this background where you respect data, but in your roles now, you probably have to put emphasis on judgment as well, where with your product managers or with your engineering team, where there isn't always a direct correlation to if we put money into this or we invest in this brand campaign, Tim, this is the rate of measurement. How do you look at that? If it, It's almost like, how do you think having that data a core part of your initial being now building eucalyptus and spriggy yeah what is that balance between data and judgment as as founders data is a tool it's 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 used as a tool to inform good decision making uh it sits within the context of broader decision making i think um it's often spoken as either or and i just don't think that's the case like our goal is to make very good decisions at speed that's really it, right? That's what we do. If you look at kind of our role, uh, even from from day one till now, it's how do you make decisions at speed that compound and point you in the right direction? I think you can make those decisions without data um, and you can make those decisions informed by data. Um, I think the, the thing that matters is your ability to make quality decisions, which sits in a good problem formulation and problem solving framework. Um, and you can support that with data. I think... Uh, Often I see data misapplied. People, um, a number of examples is that the absence of data does not mean don't make a decision. Mm. I think you don't need to have data to make good decisions. Data can support decisions, but it's often used as an excuse not to make decisions. And people lack courage. You know, they, they, can't, they can't make decisions without having tons of data collected so they don't move. And I think that's just a travesty. Like the other one is that um, um, data that is placed within the wrong context is very dangerous like data is only ma- it matters insofar that it is applied in, in a good context and a good, a good example for us is like card activation so we, we have cards which get sent out to, to parents and kids um, we saw we've seen cards not being activated and people saying there's an issue with the product you pick up the parents like no the kids we want we love the product we're just waiting for the kids birthday or waiting for them to make their bed and be well behaved you can spend hours and hours in a spreadsheet trying to get that insight, but it's misplaced if you don't have the right context. And th- these are the kind of data crimes I kind of see all the time. So, Oh, yeah. I, I think that what I want to add to that in this idea of like the absence of data is like you're actually never making a decision in the absence of data because all of your like prior experience is a form of data that you are mapping to. Like when people talk about like making decisions intuitively or without uh, – like the pure mathematical form of data, the reality is, is like they are just leveraging the previous experiences they've had in that instance to to do the thing, which is, I, I mean, like a form of a form of data in itself. And I think the thing that really, really pains me about um, people acting in the absence of data is how lazy the attempts to go and then get data tend to be. So like a lot of talking to one person, talking to three people, talking to five people, and it's like that's just terribly small amounts of data to then be used to make a decision. And I think like that's hugely problematic. Um, whereas I just rather you test the thing, like do the thing, make the decision. I think like the best decision makers I've seen are the ones that are able to contextualize the scale of a decision 
and then appropriately map the speed of that decision based on the scale of the decision. So it's like, hey, is this like, because the thing that people miss quite often is like on a long enough timeline, acceleration is just as important as quality of decisions. So if you can make a thousand 1% decisions, um, you, A, your likelihood of variance is over a long enough timeline is much lower and B, the consequences of each individual decision are way lower. And so like, I just hate this idea of like, I don't have data, therefore I will slow down, talk to three people, make a probably worse decision um, and increase the impact of that decision. I think like that's an absolute crime to me. So like when you map data to judgment, um, when you map data to judgment, it's like, well, like map, have a system here and design for like the scale of the problem and then the importance of the decision. Yeah, I really agree. The people tend to think better spatially. Like if you're looking at a spreadsheet, that's easier to contextualize than thinking about decisions made over six month periods. Um, and people really struggle, people generally, but a, a common mistake I've seen is underestimating the cost of time. Um, and so when, when, when teams come to me, they're like, oh, I wanna A-B test this, or I wanna do some research to, to gather this insight to inform this decision. I, I, I come up with this framework, which is like, I've got a book in front of me and it's got the answer to every question that you wanna ask. So say you can turn, I can turn to a page and it's got the answer to that question. Um, to that A-B test. How much are you going to pay me to turn to the page? Is it worth Is it worth a million bucks? Is it worth $1,000? Is it worth $10,000? And then they're like, it, it throws people a little bit. Um, and they say, well, every day or week we spend not making decisions actually comes with an opportunity cost. And so if you can't price the cost of getting that information to inform your decision versus the speed at which you need to make that decision and the cost to kind of unwind if you make the mistake, then you haven't really thought through well enough the context in which that information is actually applied. Um, and that, that's basically Tim's point. Hey, we'll be back to the episode in a moment. I really, really wanted to let you in on a secret. Keep this to yourself. We're working on a special series across our Curiosity Center products. We've locked in 60% of our sponsors. And if you and your company want to partner, reach out before it's too late. My details are in the show notes. Now back the episode would you both say you've had to evolve that thinking as you scaled your businesses where at siege stage you can probably run fast and break things and you've got less carry no 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 like it's the bigger you are the more the temptation of paralysis is because things like seem like bigger decisions but they're not bigger decisions like we at the moment are trying to work out like how to solve for this like behavioral change problem. And like the reality is the way to solve, to figure out how to do behavioral change is to test 10,000 different messages on people and see what moves the needle. But like the temptation is to be like, behavioral change is a big hard problem for the business and very important. So let's go and talk to 7,000 specialists about behavioral change. And what you'll get back is like, hey, nobody's very good at this. Mm -hmm. So like the bigger you are, the less likely decisions are to be terminal and therefore the faster you should make them in most cases. Mm -hmm. Customers don't give a shit how big your business is, right? Like when you start, it's just you, it's just the customer. They don't care if you've got one person, 10 people, 100 people. Um, what tends to happen is when you start a business, you're obsessed about solving customer problems and it's existential. And so you do it, right? And you do it because the company's survival depends on it. And then you do it and you, at some point you get good at it and you find a thing which kind of earns you the right to continue to exist uh, quote Tim unfortunately um, it earns you the right to exist as a business and uh, then you are like cool how do we scale this thing so you start bringing in P 
people to help build the business. And you've got this organization now which continues to serve the customer. But then it's really easy to forget. So then you start to, you stop focusing on the customer, you relax your focus and you start to focus on your organization, which is this thing you've created to actually serve the customer who was the original reason the company exists in the first place. And so most founders, I say, including myself, you start to get obsessed and focused on all these organizational problems. Um, and then you come up with reasons to slow down. You come up with reasons to stop doing the thing that you kind of earned you the right to be here in the first place. Um, and that's when I, th- that's actually, I think that's when you can, it's the beginning of the end. Like you start to see the momentum of a company slowly slow down. And then once that happens, I, I think momentum's everything in the business we're in. Um, I think that's really bad. And so do I think that as companies get bigger, they should slow down? No, I think you should try to figure out how to continue to solve customer problems at speed. And however you choose to organize yourselves as a collective is is in service of that. A story reminds me of which, Alex, you might appreciate. There's a company in India called Cred. You might have heard it. I think they're in a similar category to you or they're in the consumer app category. And the founder, Kunal Shah, he was sharing this on the podcast the other day around how they had a, a judgment that people over the age of 40 don't scroll because younger people do it and older people don't do it. And he spoke to his head of product and his head of product said his dad actually scrolls. And that was his judgment and data was one person, his dad. So they decided to build an app which has a lot of scrolling features and customers loved it. I, I think we, it just comes down to what problem you're trying to solve. And like I do my team's head in with this. I ask that question all the time, which is you're trying to figure out how to build a device that on, a, on, on average um, caters to the needs of a population, right? And there is one data point, which is old mate's dad. Um, and can you draw an inference that he represents the population or not? Well, you can, and you just have to be measured and thoughtful about it. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Whether that's the right data point, or you should get five people, or you should get zero people, or you should get 100, or you should put Hotjar in your app, or you should A-B test, is really a function of the problem you're solving. And sometimes I would much prefer people who can formulate problems well, who never look at a data point conducted by a statistical analysis, than those who can collect data all day every day and don't understand what problem they're trying to solve. Um, so to your point, I think that's a good example, a good illustrative example of one person could be a good representative of a sample size and the cost to reverse the decision is probably much, much less than talking to 100 other people. So crack on. I think particularly with performance marketing, Tim, because p- the word performance is data, right? <laughs> Do you get it? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like marketing's, marketing's in an extremely dumb state at the moment um, where it's like the, and I think like, chat GPT is probably just an acceleration of what has been going on for years which is like because everyone can see everyone else's ads um the temptation is to like copy and then make one degree of separation from the previous ad and then like that will likely perform because like over a long enough timeline people will move to move towards the optimal ad and probably like the optimal ad at the moment is like uh attractive uh person holding product um seems authentic shot on a phone ring light um mentions the product in the first five seconds blah 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 um and i think like the the disaster of that is that like to actually move the needle for a brand you're gonna have to get like standard deviations away from that and actually try um and and concept in new ways but now the rewards for concepting because you get such data such quick data feedback are so bad um that the cost of failure most people perceive the cost of failure to be higher than the value of 
um, of success. And so therefore people just go back to creating the one degree of separation advertising, which is like just very frustrating to see because like you need to like brands, particularly in like they get to this like messy middle phase where they're like the same as their competitors um, because they're all copying each other. And then to then make the next step out is, is difficult because it requires like a level of like insight and creativity um, at a really like at a really like human level that most most people actually just don't want to be involved with because it's it's too high risk for them. Can I stretch that, Tim, and ask with you today to any of your product lines? Has there been a campaign or a result that surprised you where you back to data versus judgment, where you went in as a founder with a certain intu- intuition, but the response from the customer was actually like, "Wow, I didn't expect that." Yeah, I mean, like the, 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 there's this battle that goes on around Pilot. Um, internally which is like it's a health company um therefore it should maintain a level of trust and sophistication and like um the idea of being a doctor um but then it also serves middle-aged men and like middle-aged men on the internet like stupid shit um and so to what level should the brand do stupid shit or should it do doctors talking to camera um and like uh the best performing ad we've ever done was like a um picture of Gollum holding up a ring um, holding up the ring, but the ring was actually a Viagra pill. Um, and it's like, is that a trustworthy, sophisticated representation of a medical experience? Probably not. Is that something that's native to Instagram? Probably. Um, and so like, where do you sit on this? Like, how well do you have to represent the like thing that you're doing versus represent the views of your customers? And I think actually like in most situations, like the views of the customers um will end up winning i think like you've had you've had versions of that with um the life cycle of the pig if you're going to create a a category or a brand or you're going to break out and be unique you absolutely can't do that if all you do is hyperly locally hyper like hyper local optimization um so if if you're if you're building a company in a category and all it does is look at its competitors ads pull them down and try to be a replica of that so you can have you know the greatest click-through rates and the greatest conversions. You'll absolutely come to good click-through rates and conversions sooner. Uh, but if you zoom out from that, like what company you're creating over the 6, 12, 24-month period, it's, you're going to get stuck in that phase that Tim's talked about. I think for us, we, you know, we, we play in a category where now our, our customers are families. So we've got parents and kids. Um, kids use our product the most. The, the decision to buy is made by the parent. Um, often informed by the child we play in finance um so it's a high trust space you know you can't mess around with kids and money you can't mess around with that yeah you can't do golem ads um uh, (laughs) (laughs) gotta test it we gotta a b test this one you can't do golem ads um but equally like it's just so tempting for us to look at banking ads and then try uh replicate the safety that you feel when you look at some generic person smiling with a, with a generic logo and a generic statement and i think that we've gone through it many times where when we started the business we, we you know we put forward a brand and positioning based on customer insights and what we felt our customers um would respond to and then we built test and learnt around that and as we continue to mature you've got this tension between what will perform versus what we want what what kind of market forces want us to converge to and there's a degree of actually what does this stand for um and what are we building, uh, which is informed by customer insights and you build and you test and you learn. But if you if you look at data in the absence of kind of what direction you want to take your product and brand, it will converge to something gross. I want to get to people and founder growth in a second. But prior, before that, Alex, maybe for you, because Tim's, I think, spoken about this previously and he just mentioned it where 
marketing and brand and intrigue almost is the core pillar of, of eucalyptus. That's what keeps it intact, in my view. I might be wrong. What for Spriggy is that core pillar? Because you said you're a consumer act, but you're a finance. There is an element of behavioral change. There's kids, there's adults. There's a lot going on there. What is that core pillar that you feel keeps you keeps Spriggy being the best company? I think product market fit is, is what I'd say. We, 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 we solve their problem in a category that didn't really exist before we started. Um, how do you help parents manage money with their kids in a way where kids can learn through their behaviours? I think there's a real unmet need there, particularly as cash becomes more digital, like how are kids going to learn about it and how they're going to actually manage their money. So product market fit. Um, but I would say that brand's a big part of what we do. And I'd say it's product, like it's very much bottom-up insights where you know we have a solid product market fit um, that solves customer problems in a way that puts a smile on the on the face of a child and that in turn puts a smile on, on the face of the parent. Um, and that has that has led to, uh, as we've gone from an unknown quantity to you know, scale in Australia, that has been a core pillar in how we've both built the business and grown. And that's been very iterative as well. Like on day one, they're like, who are you? And you haven't earned the right to talk to me about money or my kids. And our story of bootstrapping our brand through performance marketing and also product has been a, a core piece of how we've earned the right to kind of continue to be here today. I agree that, right, like it's, it's, it's a very intuitive and high quality solution to a like really clear and well-defined problem. Um, I think like a lot of businesses get to that point. I think like what's a really hard product market fit piece is like finding the second act that feeds off the back of that. So you're like, you're sitting at this point, you're like, yeah, we've got this good business. Um, it, it solves this problem well. Um, these patients, are, these customers are happy. Um, they will continue to do the thing that we like them to do, but it's not necessarily as lucrative as we would like it to be um, for them to be doing that. Or, and we want to leverage that into a second act. And I think like, I think like you've got like a particularly good second act in schools and then um, a kind of like searching for its space second act in invest. Um, can you talk about like leveraging that first success story into into a second thing, and and how did you go about that? Sure. So, we um, I think the problem we solve for parents and kids is like the focused one. The, the core one is we help parents manage digital pocket money with their kids in a way which is controlled and safe, and gives kids agency to make their own decisions, make their own mistakes, and learn learn through that. Uh, that is a very narrow slice of kind of money management between parents and kids and you know, like this digital pocket money is one piece of a bigger puzzle for a parent um, and the kind of the abstracted insight there is there are many places which in which families are, are moving money around um, related to their kids money going from the parent to the child or from the parent somewhere else for the child or aunties and uncles giving money to the child uh, and each of these money movements represents an opportunity for us to solve firstly solve a customer problem like you know if we think about it from how do we go from the first act to the second act? How do we, how do we, whatever we do needs to solve a real tangible annoying problem for the parent um, in a way which can build on the same thematics that we did with our first product, which is create a, an experience which is better than the next thing in market, uh, enable parents to manage money with their kids, manage the financial component with their kids, and then expose the kids to that so that they can build their own behaviours and learn from it. Digital pocket money is one slice, Paying for things that exist in and around the school environment is a very natural, a natural congruent step. 
and then looking at places where people save and invest for their kids, where aunties, uncles, grandparents are giving to their kids. How do you capture that ecosystem? And the way the way we did that was, it's it's very unglamorous. I think everyone thinks of, looks at mature products and thinks of the process to build. You know, it's always polished. It's very unglamorous. We went. I actually I went to a, a school canteen. Uh, and spoke to an operator out there and I, I asked him to just show me how he collects money from parents and how he manages what they do in the school environment. Found five parents and then the first version of the product was me on the phone with them, calling the parents and then calling the, the canteen operators, figuring out if Sophie wanted chocolate milk or strawberry milk or sushi. And then we actually didn't have a database set up. We didn't have any payments set up. It was just me on the phone talking to them, collecting their orders and, and then using, using our money to, to buy their lunch. And we did that for long enough that we got enough insights to realize, okay, this is this is the shape of the problem. We're going to go zero to one and build something that solves this. Yeah, awesome. I think it's like like the there's as much insight in in, in when those things kind of don't work as well as you'd hope as well. Like we've we've had experiences uh, across Eucalyptus where um, we solve like a core condition problem for a brand, and then uh, I, I guess like the best example is like in Kin we have um, we have a really successful kind of like contraception and, and then actually like quite a good like conception um, management business and we were trying to like launch something that did a little bit more of the service layer around pregnancy so consults around pregnancy that um, we felt like would, would stitch together into a coherent journey that, that made sense for um, for patients uh, knowing that we we essentially knew when they'd gotten pregnant um, because of the prenatal purchase and um, what was super interesting about that is like even though we had built like a high trust thing around prescription medication delivery and then quite a high trust thing around like prenatal vitamins and, and the conception offering to then, to then go to the level where they were providing advice um, through pregnancy was obviously like a level of trust that we hadn't yet established. And so the take up rate of that was like remarkably low. Um, and I, I was like surprised by, um, by that a little bit. Um, and cause it felt like intuitive steps on the same journey and then one of them was wrong and it was wrong by such a degree that like it was, you know, three to six months of wasted effort. I think you only really know when you put things out there. I think the thing that kind of talking about when it doesn't work, the things that give me, make me uncomfortable is when people start product innovation from a cell in a spreadsheet. Like that's, you know, it's it ha- like you've got customer problems, you've got business problems and you've got the vision for your business. And when you're like, we need to make more revenue or we need to grow. And then people do all this work in a room with, you know, four walls and post-it notes on the walls and this spreadsheet there and this model looks great and they haven't got any customer insight from forming that. Um, that's kind of part one. Part two, the other side of it's pretty bad as well. You talk to all these customers and they tell you all these lovely things that they'll, they'll absolutely do everything for you. But until they, until you make them vote with their feet, until their behaviors are actually tested, mm. it it's just an exercise in theory. So you, you say that it was wasted, but ultimately, I mean, the question I have for you is like, can you really establish whether that trust would have been there without actually testing because customers you're right customers will tell you what you want to hear and i I have a big problem with customer research generally um just because like customer research and like research generally is a discipline right it's an academic field asking the right questions like everybody is going to ask leading questions given the opportunity and all respondents are going to tell you what you want to hear and so like it's this like circle jerk of validation that like ends up with a whole lot of bad product decisions being made off the back of it. And so like um, the the craft of removing bias is not something that like a mid-level PM is going to know how to do. And so you end up in these like terrible situations where you're like, we've, we've validated this thing. And then when you actually test it in the market, it, it, it. I feel like this is a good 
segue into my next broad theme, if you guys want to talk about it, which is, and you touched on it with that founder and, and a mid-level PM, to use your words, is most founders tend to be generalists, right? Or on average, if we just if we just average it out, maybe both of you have some special areas that you specialize on. How do you balance it in that instance where maybe a specialist PM who's built five amazing products prior to you or within you comes to you with something and you go, no, my judgment tells me this back to data versus judgment. And often founders have this ability to just sense what the customer wants. That's why you've scaled a business was the PM or the engineering manager was thinking about, oh, how do I get a get do a great job and get team's approval and get my next bonus or promotion or what have you. How do you balance that generalist versus specialist thinking? And this kind of goes into hiring and, and people. Like starting here, I think like, I, I just don't think like the magic founder idea is, is real. Like I think like founders are no more special in most cases than the average person in the business um, at, 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 at doing anything really. I think like what, what they do have is a lot more context. And so the responsibility that you do have is to provide that context and then help them frame the problem. I think like what Alex, and he's alluded to this already, is like what he does really well um, with his team is is ask good questions and frame up problems and challenge their thinking. But ultimately it's their thinking. And I think if you try and top down every decision, um, you end up with an unhappy team, uh, a lot of mistakes, and also just like a limitation to how much you can actually scale your solution. So um, I think like on this idea of like leaning into your specialty, I think you can provide more context in your specialty and you can probably ask better questions. But if you're finding yourself making all of the decisions, um, you're in a pretty toxic spot on a, on a reasonably short timeline. I agree with the... The toxic founder, oh, sorry, not toxic founder, jeez. Oh, uh, uh, the um, general versus specialist and su- like superpower founder. I, d- I don't think that founders are, that they don't possess something that the average person in your team doesn't. I think what, agreeing with Tim, like there's context, but there's also like focus on what problem, like I've been focusing on a specific problem for a long time, which is to build and grow a business. And that business is, that involves understanding a little bit of marketing product engineering legal risk compliance people uh customer and and i think typically what you find is if there's someone in a role in a business um, who comes from another business they are very very good at solving a certain type of problem but that problem is usually like a subset of the broader business problem um and to understand their skills and how those skills have been built over time, you need to understand the context in which they've forged those skills. And so I'll give you a really good example. Like imagine you have an agency, well, I think it's good, but imagine you've got an agency where you've got a product team and that agency is uh, consults. They do they take projects from big corporates and their job there is to formulate an MVP. Um, what you'll find is that that business survives on their ability to get clients. The business doesn't survive on their ability to get product market fit. It doesn't survive on their ability to retain customers. It doesn't survive on their ability to raise money, market that product, get the right business model. So if you get a, if you have a PM who's come from that environment, they'll typically be very good at formulating research, putting things together in a pitch deck, um, creating a set of slides, and then presenting that back to a business stakeholder. That's not to say that they're wrong or right in doing though. That just their job has been to be a product manager who does research and pitches things back to corporates. Um, contextualized within your business, that skill may or may not be what you need to solve the problem which you're focused on, which is to grow and scale your business. And I think it's the the additional context you have as a founder and understanding where the the role and the value creation lies 
from previous experience and current experience is 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 the is the difference. Yeah, yeah, I think that like raises an interesting question around um, how teams are formulated and, and and like what skills you want to bring in to what roles with regards to like this like generalist v specialist problem. I think like I oscillate like pretty wildly between when to bring in specialists and when to bring in generalists and actually like what level of experience to optimize for. Um, and, and like I, I, at different times I've, I've felt like there were like generalized approaches that worked. Um, and I actually think it's like very horses for courses and also uh, t- like the right time in the business as well. I think like early on the rewards for generalists are um, higher because you have to solve so many problems in so many different ways. And then you get more specialized as you go. But I think there's a trap, which is like, if you bring in a lot of specialist talent um, and that specialist specialist talent isn't like awesome, then you end up in a situation where you like are inflexible about what you're doing because you have a certain type of people working on a certain type of problem. Um, but you're not the best at solving that problem. And so it's very hard to then move around. And so then I'm like back being like, okay, maybe there are roles for generalists here where it's, uh, actually like, what is like, what is the specialist field? And like, if, if fields, fields feel specialized, but they're actually not. And then the talent is like, not as good as you'd hoped. You end up in this really bad spot of like inability to solve the only problem that you're now capable of solving. And so like, there's this transformation that needs to happen throughout the life of the business, which is like, what is the right team to solve this problem at this time? And how do I ensure that that team and the skills that need to be in that team are there? Um, and I like to, to Alex's like agency point, it's like, the type of person that will be successful at managing stakeholders within a business is actually really valuable at certain points of the business and in certain places, but like can be super toxic in others where action is the, is the needed outcome. And so like there is such a, there's no recipe here, but it's like you've got to be really clear about what skills you actually need in the team that you're trying to form to solve a specific problem and then not wed to that team being the team for the future. Um, I guess like Alex, have you had experience of where a combination of personalities has been super effective at a specific point and then less effective at some point down the line. Yeah, totally. Uh, the, I think, and just, just in terms of context on this question, this is the kind of stuff we spend hours and hours and hours talking about. Like this is what all founders at some point, this is where most of your time and energy is. Um, I think to your point around general, generalist versus specialist, early stage company, uh, you're typically solving the, 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 the frontier, of the, the types of problems that you're solving are typically unstructured and dynamic in nature as you position your company to figure out why it should stick around and, and continue to exist. And then as you mature as a company, some elements of what you do are like undifferentiated lifting. These are things that have been solved problems in other areas of business. So making sure you pay your salaries on time uh, is a solved problem. Um, and then there are elements of your business which are what differentiates you and makes you unique. I think that for sp- where do you bring in specialists? Like, you know, you're not going to bring in a really intelligent grad to come and sit in your sit as a CFO as you prepare to IPO. Like, that's a solved problem. People have done that. Bring in people who have done that before. Um, in areas of your business which are uniquely differentiate you, that's where it becomes harder. If you're a company that's a product company which relies on product innovation to survive, that's typically something you're going to do well. And then if you can bring people with a fast learning rate in to those environments and also support them with enough autonomy to, to, to move and they have the ability to grasp the concept of your broader business so they can realize that their role is actually a subset of an organization and, and they have to help 
innovate with the company to move the company forward. That's where I've typically had the best success. When you bring in specialists who have product specialists into a company where you're like, actually, we do this pretty good, but we need to innovate uniquely, and they try reason by analogy in your environment, it doesn't work. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts on, on what Tim said. And I think it's tempting to have general frameworks for everything, but like there's very, very real use cases where you should have a specialist versus a generalist. And I think it'll come down to, is it a unique problem to your organization? And if not, if it is probably find someone who's done this somewhere else. Uh, sorry, if it's not, find someone who's done this somewhere else. And if it's unique, figure out how you can make sure your secret source is there and you can continue to innovate on the frontier that you've created. I think in terms of the teams I've found the most useful, like early stage stuff, fast learning rate. People from a diverse range of backgrounds who can learn quickly. I think that as the frontier of your problem space changes, um, you want people who can change with that. And particularly from anywhere from a team of a handful of people all the way through to I mean, I'd even argue today you want like a, you know, a Series B company, you still want fast learning rate in, in most of the places you have and then fast learning rate with good context and good aptitude, you can, you, you'll, you'll be in a good spot. I this like, like, I have a follow-up question to something you said there, which is, and I, this is actually something that stresses me out so often. So, you, you know, there's that Bezos quote, which is like outsource anything that doesn't make your beer taste better. Yeah. And it's like, I, I get it intuitively. I'm like, okay, like these things are undifferentiated. Make sure that um, we don't overspend time on them. But like it, 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 it hits up against something for me, which is like, like the more things you are elite at, the more optionality you have around how you differentiate your end customer um, offering. So like the example is like, if we were the world's best supply chain company and the world's best marketing company, the surface area by which we can do marketing increases because we have the supply chain thing. But then I'm also like, well, now I'm like spreading our bets from like what we become a lead at. And it's like less likely that we're going to be world-class at either of those things now. And I'm like, and like, that's a really simple example. Like, like you want to be, you want to be a lead at four to five things, right? Ideally, like talent identification is something that you could in theory be a lead at and then also marketing and then also operations and you'd be like a great company. But I, then I'm like, it comes up against this idea that the best companies are in reality only really great at one thing. Um, and so I, I have this like conflict internally about how hard to work on many things being great or how hard to focus on one thing being great. Do you have a perspective? I do have a perspective. I, and I think it's a tough, tough problem. I, I, I think um, it's a function of your problem domain and your solution domain. And so, uh, and, and I'll kind of, be less abstract with that, which is if you're in a business kind of like ours where there's a premium and there's utility on discovering the next most important problem to solve, the amount of variance you have in how you discover solutions is important, right? Because you want, you know, you're turning over rocks. It's like, well, this one might be a really good thing for us to kind of anchor out the direction of our business on and we want to go, you know, we, we want to go left instead of right. And so if there is value in exploration in the problem space, then variance in how you build your company is, is valuable, right? Um, and then the other extreme of that is if if you have one problem, which is like, if I solve this problem and we'll, that will make and shape a generational company, then everything else get off your plate. Mm. So I think whether the, the amount of variance you, you choose to place in your organization comes with a cost. That cost is weighed up against the value of discovery. And that value of discovery is a function of how much utility there is in the problem domains that you are you're exploring, and I think that is that is that is how I would think about it. And I think for companies at our life cycle, um, you know, you can think of that at an individual level, like you know, like 
there's, there's like what you know versus what you explore. But then you can think of that, how do you build an organization which has the right amount of chaos so that it can un, it, it, it can turn over the, the next most important problem, but not too much chaos that it's too costly and it erodes your focus. I want to um, maybe break up the conversation here with the provocations. I think I saw on Twitter and I'll be curious. There's it's a question with four options. It was a poll I saw on Twitter. I'll be curious what each of your answers are and then I'll give the answer that I saw in the poll. So the question is, what makes someone the best? Four options, hard work, passion, natural talent, and help from others. Conscientiousness uh, and intellect are the two. Um, I think they're, and I'm, this is not invented here. You know, um, you gotta be smart and then you gotta be conscientious. And I think those two, I mean, there's, there's a universe of other things you could say here, uh, but like, if you're an in- intelligent person who, customers don't care if you're smart. Like, I just don't think they give a shit. Um, you need to be smart and conscientious. And I, I don't know if I answered the Twitter poll, but, and then also like the best, I think that's just a bit of a cop out. Like best yeah. is a function of, like, if like, if you derive utility teaching kindergarten and you, you, that's that's a, an amazing profession, right? That's, and I think that's incredible. Um, that's not necessarily the best uh, in the context of that question. I think I'd be, it's kind of, on theme for me but like what problem what problems matter to you and what 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 where do you want to spend your time and if you want to spend your time in areas that aren't typically going to trend well on a Twitter poll that's that's great I think the worst for me is people who spend their time trying to solve problems or chase career paths that they don't even give a shit about in the first place so. my I'll take that in a different direction I think like I think like the fetishization of hard work is like I, like look hard work is good and like um, um, but a lot of people work hard and get nowhere. Yeah, but I think like it's just like the definition of hard work is really annoying to me because it's like it's defined by a set of it almost has this like like almost like uh, Japanese salaryman type definition of like um, of like how much time do you put into a problem and it's like that's just not what working hard is like like when I'm working my hardest is when I'm spending the most time thinking about things that I need to do and like problems within the world that I inhabit. But like that doesn't correlate to the definition of working hard in many people's examples. And it's like, like, I think like increasing the number of decisions you make and increasing the speed at which you make those decisions and trying to improve the quality of those decisions, like that's working hard. But like the definition of it is so poor that like we end up like, we end up fetishizing the complete wrong behaviors. And I just like, it makes me feel a bit ill. I think your learning rate is what matters, right? And if you spend, if you if you spend all your time working all working all hours, and you, you're making the same mistake on day 100 that you're on day one, like that's a shocker, you know. And that's that's something you should probably revisit how you're approaching things. And I think to Tim's point, the fetishization is, I think, it's just so misleading. I think your learning rate is what matters. This the efficiency in which you can learn and apply that knowledge. Um, and typically, you need to work hard to do that, but it's correlation, not causation. Yeah. So the Answer was hard work, but the person who did it was this guy, Shreyesh Doshi, who's a product influencer. If you follow me, he does a lot of stuff with nothing worse than product influencers. Yeah, so he, he does all this stuff and he travels around now. So everyone's got their own opinion on it. And he got this natural talent. I think the thing I struggle with this is like it's very reductionist. If you're, if you're like, if, if someone is at the beginning of their career, like, what do I, how do I be successful? Uh, and they, it's very tempting to be like, well, if there's a silver bullet and if I ha- if it's it's being naturally talented versus hard work, it's just not how the world works. And I think that um, it's very misleading to consume this very low dimensional kind of, you know, is it A or B? You know, I see this all the time, which is like, you know, you know founders sleep 
but this is their schedule. They get up at 5 a.m. I don't get up at 5 a.m. You know, like everyone's got different. This is like a, such misleading stuff. Like Alex, Alex once told me that he arrived at work every morning at 5 a.m. Um, when we first met. <laughs> and we were working in the same office, so there was no way that was going to hold up. It's fucking such a stitch up. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I, I think like to the point, I think it's, um, I just think it's like, if you're looking to kind of draw inspiration and try, try be good at what you do, it's not going to come from Twitter post. And I actually think it attracts the wrong kind of conclusions to be drawn by people who read. Tim and Alex, last question. I'm going to crowdsource it. What do you want to ask each other? What's in your mind? You want to finish off with the last team? Uh, I think the best thing that we haven't talked about is uh, Alex's framework for understanding people who start companies. Yeah, sure. Um, so we're talking about yeah, in the in, we're talking about advice before, and and I think starting a company, you when you're starting a company, you run into all sorts of people. Um, I kind of think in terms of three buckets, there are dreamers, leavers, and settlers. Um, so a, a settler is someone who has a lane it's a, it could be a very good career path they're really comfortable where they're at and they're happy to kind of follow that through and i think like a lot of my very close friends are you know you know career medical professionals or in, in legal firms and um, they're very happy and so i'd say they're like settled into a path and they'll crack on and then you got leavers like people like tim and i who couldn't for the life of us make it in a, in a job not because of our entrepreneurial ambitions because we're both pretty unemployable because of our personalities um, so we leave and we end up having to figure out how to make money doing something or we're in a bit of trouble. And then I think there's the middle category, which is the dreamers who are like people who are six months away from starting a business and they've been like that for the last six years. And these are the, these are people who are settlers who think that they're leavers um, and are at a, at a, always at a point of conflict because they don't want to be in their job, but they want to start a business, but they don't actually want to start a business, but they tell themselves they want to start a business. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think like, it, yeah, I, I, I reframe kind of like the group of people that this talks to, which is like, there's a whole lot of people that um, are wanting to move into working into a startup. And I think like a lot of the time that is positioned as like a way to get like control and the ability to work on um, new and interesting problems and all of these like structural things that like, um, the the promise of a less uh, structured environment does does kind of give, and I think like the reality actually is that like a lot of those people will be really really poorly suited to that environment because um, with ambiguity, there's a whole lot of costs of ambiguity, and people miss the costs of ambiguity, um, and so like, and I'm I'm obviously very uh, encouraging of people leaving corporate roles for startups, but I think like there is a word of warning for that, which is um, that you will be thrown into ambiguity and not get a lot of the structural accelerants on your career that you're used to. Um, and those things, those are things that are like really well structured feedback from somebody who's done it before. It's like quite likely that there'll be no one in the business who's done the thing that you're going to have to do before um, or like a clear progression pathway. Um, and it's like, well, there's like a chance that that isn't there because actually um, the business will go through a real phase of acceleration and then stabilize or like shrink or then grow. And then like, so your path will be non-linear and be defined by your ability to move between problems. And I think like, um, I think like there's been a lot of buzz around joining startups over the last couple of years. And I think we're now at a point where people kind of have to take stock and be like, well, like that's not for everyone. And you've got to be a little bit more careful than I think people are out there about, um, about making that leap. If I share my own just quickly personal experience, I went from corporate to startup and at a corporate, I always wanted rope and I wanted autonomy and I wanted freedom. I drowned in the first six months I went into a startup because you get given all that rope and you get given a blank canvas, literally going, 
cool, come up with an idea. You don't have the places to hide in meetings and blame someone else and say, hey, the software broke or da 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 da. You've got to just open an Excel spreadsheet and figure it out or whatever, right? So um, I don't know. It sounds like you've had some reflections on because oh, you had a view that talent pools from corporates are there's a magic there, right? Oh no, no. Like I definitely still believe that. I definitely yeah. still believe that. But I just think like there is caution to the narrative um and i think people just need to know what they're stepping into um more than perhaps they've given credit for particularly over the next couple of years where it won't be like everything's a rocket ship like there's gonna be some attritional battles like we're both gonna go through attritional battles over the next three or three to five years right so um the like the magic of yeah yeah they're like you know they're different right so yeah just just like i think like we're about to enter a phase that is uh you know, people have to pull their socks up and get into a nutritional thing. And like everybody who is making that leap needs to understand that. The difference between being taught and learning. And I think a lot of people conflate those two. Uh, Self-directed learning is like critical in any early stage environment because there just aren't the resources. And people who expect to be taught when actually they're expected to learn, uh, they I've seen them struggle. Yeah. Uh, and then the second one is intrinsic motivation. I think a lot of the motivation to be in an environment like the environments that Tim and I work in, um, it has to be intrinsic. If you're doing it because of some sort of carrot at the end of a stick or some sort of TechCrunch article that you're going to show your friends, it's, mm. it won't last. It's like, and it won't last in the good times and in, in tougher markets, it's not going to last as well. So, Yeah, I mean, we could go on for this for forever. Let's close with a quick rapid fire, or as, I, as Tim calls it, a pithy way to <laughs> end, end podcast, is uh, what's one thing you want to learn in the next six months? Tim, we'll start with you. Uh, I think like the thing that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is like, what is our philosophy for how we build product? Um, we, I think every, every business needs its own way that it builds products. And I think like we, we've struggled to find that DNA. We tried to borrow it from other companies and I don't know if that's necessarily worked as well. So very keen to kind of get to clarity on, um, like our product combines content with like infrastructure for messaging, with tracking, with transactional stuff. And I think like there's there's some unique-ish elements to that so i'm like very keen to like have clarity in the business and, and and in myself as to how we approach that problem for me personally learning how to take the best of what i can offer to our business um while getting completely out of the way for people i think we've as we've scaled it's really hard to know how to be helpful um because sometimes you see people who are going to run into a wall which you could have told them was there in three months time without getting in their way i'm per, like the personal struggle for me at the moment um and like i talk to tim about it all the time i'm still learning how to do that uh in terms of the business i think we have one of the best stories to tell as a product and company and i don't think we do a good enough job telling it um and i think that's a function of our maturity as a company but as we continue to mature how do we t- how do we become expert storytellers um not an expert product company and good performance marketers Tim Doyle, Alex Bedrin, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having us. I hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and continue to be 1% better. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can either share a rating or review on your podcast app or contact me directly by email or any of our social media pages. All links are in the show notes. Talk soon.